Welcome to the next in our online conversation series. This time I am delighted to be joined by the Reverend Professor Judy Fentress-Williams, who is Professor of Old Testament Studies at the Virginia Theological Seminary in the United States of America and an ordained minister in the Baptist Church. Professor Fentress-Williams is a well-known writer and her most recent book, Holy Imagination, a literary and theological introduction to the whole Bible is the focus of our conversation this time. In this conversation, we explored holy imagination and what impact that has on how we read the Bible. We thought about reading the Bible more playfully, reading it as though it is a piece of poetry, and what difference that makes both to how we read it, but also to how we think of it as a work of authority. We had a wide-ranging conversation, as always, but one of the things that I really loved was Professor Fentress Williams' passion for the Old Testament. And I hope you enjoy watching this as much as I enjoyed having the conversation with her. Judy, um, it's so lovely to have you with us today. Um, I've got a first question, which I hope will kind of begin to introduce you to people who don't know you so well. Um, in various of your writings, you've said, you've said that you grew up steeped in the Bible, but with a whole load of questions that you didn't know where to go to get answered. Can you remember any of those questions and have they been answered or are you still asking them? <laughs> That's a great question. Yes, I grew up in a home where we went to church at least two times a week. I went to Christian school from kindergarten to 12th grade. So I got a lot of Bible and I had a lot of questions. Um, one of my questions was, where did Cain's wife come from? So we have this story of Adam and Eve, and they have these sons, and Cain goes out somewhere, and the next thing we know, he's married. Well, how did that happen? And another question that I still struggle to answer is, why did God try to kill Moses? Um, I've come up with some slightly better answers, but none that are completely satisfactory. I have questions from the primeval history, like where there dinosaurs on the ark? Where was Adam when the serpent came to Eve? And why wasn't she startled that the serpent was speaking? So then I start to think about whether animals were speaking back then and whether that's tied to C.S. Lewis's um, inspiration for animals that talk in the land of Narnia. So yes, I had many questions about the Bible. I assume you still have many questions about the Bible. What do you do today? Um, I mean, I, I'm with you completely. Um, when people say, you know, when you're a biblical scholar, surely you get all the answers. It's like, no, 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 no. I, for every one question I used to have, I now have 25 more. That's right. Um, what do you do with questions when they emerge for you now? Well, I set them in context. I talk to people about genre. So now when people ask questions about where did Cain's wife come from, I start by saying, well, we need to first consider whether or not this is history as we know it, or if this is a documentary. Is this something that's trying to give us um, a narrative of exact occurrences, or is something else going on? And once we understand the genre, then that kind of helps us reset our expectations for what the text is offering and what we might hope to get from it. The other thing I do is I tell people I have an open file and that's my open file questions. And every now and then I get to pull one out, but it does feel like, um, as you said, for everyone that I pull out, I end up putting three more in. 
um, I've got a book rather than a file. But um, <laughs> um, it was one of my um, one of my undergraduate tutors was someone called Tom Wright, who lots of people yes. have heard of. Yes. And yes. he had one when I was an undergraduate. And it was one of the most helpful things he ever told me about was actually not worrying about the questions, yeah. but popping them down and then yeah. going back. And sometimes you go back to them and go, oh, yeah, no, I've got yeah. it. I now know yeah. how to answer that one. Yeah. Um, or as likely as not, you go, ah, but now I've got three more to add yeah. on to the bottom of that yeah. original yeah. one. So. Or the other option is sometimes that question doesn't matter as much anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And that's Absolutely. also really nice. Yeah. So what would you say to people who really worry about questions? Because I, I talk to a whole load of people who worry that somehow their faith is deficient because they have more questions than they do answers. Yeah. So one of the questions that I ask people is what's at stake? What's at stake for you in getting the right answer or the um, making sure that you have it down? And when we start down that path, one of the next things that inevitably comes up is this um, very narrow understanding of what the Bible is and how the Bible conveys truth and what kind of truth it is. One of the other things I encounter with questions like that when I talk to people from the Western world is the sense of ownership. This idea somehow that we, it is our God-given right, our inherent right, that we will um, understand um, and control everything that happens in this text. So one of the things I try to gently get people to understand is this isn't about you. Um, we are in relationship with the text. Um, the text is here to um, direct us, to guide us, to challenge us, to confuse us, confound us, inspire us. It's going to do all of these things, but we don't get to own it in the way that we're accustomed to owning things. Um, I'll make one more C.S. Lewis reference, and that is this reference to the lion Aslan, where they say he is not a tame lion. Um, the Bible is not a tame collection. It's not a tame text. Um, that doesn't mean it can't transform us. That doesn't mean it can't show us the way to salvation. But it does mean in some ways we don't get to control everything that happens. I think that's enormously helpful. And I too love C.S. Lewis. And uh, I find myself <laughs> dropping C.S. Um, I'm a New Testament scholar. Um, and one of the things I often get to when I'm talking about Revelation, I go, mm. was that in the last battle or was it in the book of Revelation? They kind of mold together in my mind. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and I think what you're touching on in your answers here is what often would fall under the banner of the authority of scripture. Yeah. And I wonder, um, and it's one of those phrases that I think we often feel quite nervous about, don't we? Because people put it in a yes or no, you know, do yeah. you believe in the authority of scripture or not? To yeah. which I want to say yes, but I think I don't probably mean the same thing as you mean by right. it. Right. And I wonder whether you just like to reflect a little bit yeah. on that. Yeah, I think the question around authority in scripture is not, is the scripture authoritative or not, but how? How is it authoritative? What can it do? What does it do? Um, and how does it do it? Um, this whole concept of authority to scripture comes out of a movement that's attempted in my mind to lock something down. And I think the Bible is resistant to that. In my experience of biblical scholarship as an Old Testament scholar, whenever I come across or was introduced to a method that had all the answers, there were, would inevitably be some elements of the Bible that wouldn't fit. 
And so for lack of a better word, I tell my students all the time, the Bible is squirrely. We want to contain it. We want to say, here is the key. We want to say, this is the, the set of um, methodological approaches that are going to help you to kind of navigate this text. They are tools, but none of those things are the answer in and of themselves. The Bible's authority, in my mind, comes from what... Um, what the Bible claims to represent, um, that there is a God um, behind through the text um, that we're trying to get to. Um, so we want to help people to move away from worshiping the text, and this is people in faith tradition, move away from worshiping the text and um, discerning how to encounter and get to know the God behind the text, the God who operates through this text. I absolutely love that. And the next time somebody says to me, do you think the Bible's authoritative? I will say, I think it's squirrely. <laughs> <laughs> I'm taking that away most definitely. <laughs> and well, in all of that squirreliness, I would also add it's beautiful, right? It's yeah, no, powerful, it absolutely, right? It this is, is why we keep coming back. And it draws you in. I think that's yes. the thing. Again, I find that it, it kind of takes up residence inside of you. Yes, um, yes. And, and the other thing I often like to think about when I'm thinking of authority is it invites you into a conversation. And and one of the things for me that is so important is that kind of a, people often assume that it's a some kind of proclamation that you just have to sit down and shut up and say nothing and listen. Whereas for me, in reading scripture, yes. it draws you into this most remarkable conversation, yes. uh, which I find exciting. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Now you're um, you're. Um... You're singing the, my music. Um, I um, really love this dialogic approach to scripture mm -hmm. um, because I think in addition to our conversation with scripture, scripture's in conversation with itself. And this is often where people get into trouble, right? Because they pick up one piece of the text and they run with it. And what we want to say is that's a part of a larger conversation. Um, it's not unlike um, when I was a child, you know, I'd come into the room and my mother was on the phone and I'm listening and I think I know what's going on, but I don't know what's on the other side. I don't know who she's speaking to or what they're saying. We do this with the Bible all the time. Um, we read one gospel and we say, I've got it. Well, let's see what the other gospels have to say. Um, anything in the Old Testament I say worth telling is going to be told at least twice. What does the other account bring to this? How do the differences um, in those two accounts create a set of questions that are important? And that seems to bring us on quite importantly to my, the, one of the next questions I wanted to ask you. You say in various places that you think the Bible is best read as though it's poetry. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that. Yeah, I know that when we read poetry, we position ourselves differently. We have expectation, we expect beauty, we expect to be inspired, but we also know we're gonna have to work. Um, you don't pick up a poem and expect to move through it like you would a grocery list. You know you have to bring everything to four. What, 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 what images are being created? How does the sound of this line evoke something in me? And so we come with a set of expectations and I dare say a sense of playfulness um, a willingness to enter into an alternate universe. And in so doing, um, we are open to hearing in more than one way or on a multiple, uh, multiple levels. Um, if we could do that with the Bible, I um, can only imagine um, how exciting some of our interpretations would be. 
they really would, wouldn't they? I mean, they would kind of look. Um, do you have a bit of the Bible that does that for you more than the rest? Have you, I mean, it's, it's an impossible question because people say yeah. to me, what's your favourite bit of the Bible? Yeah. I say, yeah. well, can I have a yeah. favourite 10? Uh, yes. But yeah. I've got to ask you the question. Do you yeah, have a bit absolutely. where that can be more does that whole yeah. beautiful immersive yeah so that's a i love that question um my students will tell you that my favorite book of the bible is whatever i've read last and i tell them <laughs> that all the time it's like it's going to be this today and be prepared tomorrow it will be something else but i end every old testament survey class with the song of songs and the reason i do it is because i find the poetry so um, so lush so dense and so sensual. And when I say sensual, I mean it appeals to every one of our senses. Um, it's inviting us to smell and to taste and to see and to hear and to touch. I believe that is what scripture invites us to do. The other thing that I love about the Song of Songs is that the Song of Songs is focused on desire and longing. And it seems to me these are the two moments that get enacted again and again and again in scripture. Being together and the joy of being together and all the longing that comes with being apart and the tremendous desire to be back together again. This is our story in our relationship with God. And so I think I would use the Song of Songs. And one, the other thing I love about the Song of Songs, I would say, is the prominence of the female voice, that the man and the woman are there in dialogue, in conversation together. And that kind of takes us on to my next question, which is about imagination. Um, <laughs> the title um, of your book um, talks about a holy imagination. Mm. What is one of those and how do we cultivate it, do you think? Yeah. yeah. So that title comes from something that you see in the Black preaching tradition, where a preacher will say, if I were to use my sanctified imagination or when I use my sanctified imagination, and that's the clue to the congregation and to the audience that he's stepping out away from the words on the page and actually kind of stepping in between the words um, into the gaps of scripture and imagining through them. And I love the fact that it happens regularly in that space and that we're invited to do it. I see that same thing happening, for example, in godly play, when people get to say, I wonder. And so I think um, sanctified imagination is what the Bible stimulates in us with what it says and what it doesn't say. So that when I go back to the question I can't answer um, about Eve in the garden and the serpent talking to her and where was Adam, those questions actually um, can be the springboard for some deeper understanding of what is in scripture. So if I let go of the desire to control the narrative with a specific and concrete answer 
and see my questions or the questions that the Bible presents us with as invitations to go deeper, um, to, to see more, to find more, um, to look at other scriptures, then we see um, the beginning of the imaginative process that may in fact lead us to deeper truths in the same way that the images and metaphors and poetry are saying, here are the words on the page, but I, I want you to see this other thing too. It's not an either or, but it can be a both and. And do you think there's any limit to imagination? Because I'm totally with you on imagination. <laughs> and I've, um, in my, my past few books, I've been um, got into story writing as yeah. a means of engaging with um, yeah. the Bible. Um, mm. And um, people who want to be critical say to me, oh, you're just making it up. Yeah. And I want to say, well, I am, I'm, I'm kind of making it up and I'm kind of not making it up. I, and I love the phrase holy imagination. Yeah. But do you get to that stage of going, there are limits where we just need to put around this and say, well, actually, that's possibly too far? Or would you say there is no such thing as too far in holy I guess, imagination? Yeah, I guess it depends on what it's for. So mm -hmm. when I engage, my, I, the authority that comes from preaching in my mind is different or somewhat different than the authority that I give to the Bible. Both authoritative, but perhaps differently. The authority that I hold in the classroom when I'm telling my students what I think this text is doing, it has some level of authority, but it's not the ultimate authority. And so again, I think when people say that's too far or it's too much, part of what we're asking is, where's the flagpole? Um, and what is the flagpole so that we now feel that we've gone too far? I do wonder sometimes when people interpret the text, um, if um, they are being completely driven by their own context um, and not anything else. So in biblical scholarship, we learn all these methodologies and they're imperfect, but in some ways they help keep us honest because some of those questions aren't ours. And so that creates this natural tension between my own context and, and the context from which these other methodologies come. I'll put it that way. Um, when we're working with folks in a church group, I think one of the ways to protect against what we would call isogesis or just simply reading into a text would be to do it in community, to do it in conversation with people who don't all see things the way we do, who don't all feel the same way about the Bible. There with that comes um, some built-in checks and balances. Yeah, I, again, I totally agree that, that the importance of community reading is yeah. so very important, isn't it? Yeah. Um, another question I wanted to ask you about the Bible is often in my conversations with people about the Bible, they they see it as a, reading the Bible as a chore. You know, it's something that has to be done. You don't have to enjoy it, but you do have to do it. Yeah. And uh, I was rather captivated by you saying that you want people to fall in love with reading yeah. the Bible. Yeah. Um, how do people, if, if somebody's listening and saying, yeah, but it's just so boring, what would you say to them? I would say you're not reading the right stories. <laughs> um, there's some great material in the Bible. There's a lot of drama. I mean, soap operas have nothing on the story of David. Um, I love using the story of Ahud with middle school boys. It has bathroom humor and, you know, guts and blood and all the things. And so I think... Um, we have to re-envision what this text is. 
we think about genre, remember that there's so many different kinds of literature in the Bible. People who say reading the Bible is a chore will turn around and say, oh, I love the Psalms. People who say, I hate the Old Testament, you know, are looking at Proverbs. People who say the Bible is difficult love reading the parables. And so I think we need to kind of help people see there's all kinds of material in here. And then step back and say, now what's hard about the Bible? They're going to tell you, we don't like the begats. We don't like the genealogies. Well, then we get to show them how genealogies work. And one of the things I find helpful for folks with scripture is um, biblical storytelling, embodiment of the text. These texts come from an oral culture. And they were, they were created as stories that were told. Many, many, many of them were performed and told orally before they were written down. And so telling the story opens up texts for people in ways um, that help them to see all the possibilities within that story. That's when we get to see humor, more humor in the Bible, suspense, um, and to hear different voices. Now, I'm going to be a bit cheeky here and see if you will mm -hmm. forgive me. Um, I, I'd love to hear you tell a story from the Bible just so we get a sense of it. And you well, mentioned Ehud. Would you like to do that or another one? Um, I the, the One of the stories I tell is the story of um, the widow and the oil in 2 Kings 4 Wonderful. with Elijah. So let's. I'll, I'll try to remember most of it. Um, now a wife of the woman of the company of prophets came to the prophet Elisha and said, your servant, my husband is dead. And you know that your servant feared God. But now a creditor has come to take my children and sell them into slavery. And Elisha said, what, what shall I do for you? What do you have in your house? She, she said, your servant has nothing. Servant has nothing except uh, except a little oil. He said, "Go out, go to your neighbors and borrow vessels, empty vessels, and and not a few, and then go into your house and shut your door behind you, and pour into each of the vessels, and when each is full, set it aside." So she went into her house and shut the door behind herself and her sons, and she began to pour into the vessels. And as each one was full, she would set it aside. When the last one was full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said, there are no more. And then the oil stopped flowing. So she went to the man of God and told him what happened. And he said, go and sell the oil and pay off your debts. And then you and your sons can live on the rest. That was fabulous. I loved it. I could easily sit here and listen to you all day telling stories. Um, but thank you so much for doing that, because what you've done is you've shown, you've demonstrated a little bit of what we're talking about, haven't you? Yeah. You've, you've demonstrated the imagination and the beauty and the inspiration. Mm -hmm. So let's move on to the hard question then. Okay. Um, in that, 
there is inspiration and beauty. What about, um, say, the story of the Levite's concubine in the book of Judges or one of those other really horrible stories that you hear it and you think, I I can't even listen to this. It's so awful. Um, What do you do with those really difficult bits of scripture? Yeah. So I tell my students, um, I'm going to turn to Judges 19, actually, because that is my candidate for the worst passage of scripture. I think it it wins um, free and clear. Um, So I say to them, this is a terrible story. And we do all of the trigger warnings. And then I say, if we are saying that this text has some value, what might the value be? Um, And we can't have that conversation unless we engage the text. So when we do the kind of historical critical analysis, one of the things we look at will be where it happens. It happens in Gebeah. What do we know about Gebeah? That's where Saul is from. We have another story about Saul cutting an ox into 12 pieces and sending it out. So there are all these uh, illusions that make us think we want to tie these things together. But one of the things that I want to point out in the midst of all the horror of this story is what the story says at the end. Has such a thing ever happened since the day that the Israelites came up from the land of Egypt into this day? Here are the last words. Consider it, take counsel, and speak out. So one thing we want to make clear is that just because the Bible has violence, it's not always condoning violence. Sometimes it seems like it is, but this is not one of those moments. Here it is saying this is horrible thing. Consider it, take counsel, and speak out. I wonder if we might think about using this text as a way of speaking about speaking out against violence against women, the violence that comes from men in women's lives or women in women's lives and from those in authority who allow it. The father is complicit in this story and not and I want us to kind of go further and say not only is the father complicit, but the culture is complicit. And is this horrible story here to say let's speak out against the system that allows this to happen, the individuals who turn a blind eye, and those who enact or perpetrate violence against others. Um, So I want to take a text like this and find a way for us to use it so that these things don't happen anymore. In a theological sense, or I don't know if I want to say theological, in a historical critical sense, in the book of Judges, it comes in this grouping of materials at the end that says, in those days there was no king in Israel. And so part of what's happening in the movement of the book is that it's trying to show us this is a state of anarchy. The, 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 the editors are trying to make a case for a king. This is what anarchy looks like. From a theological perspective and a sociological perspective, I want to say a godless society um, or the indicators of our godless society are societies that don't take care of the least of these. So I'm okay with people saying Judges 19 offends me, but I'm going to ask those same people, and what are you doing about violence that is enacted against women and children in the world today? So I want us to kind of take the discomfort from this because we should be discomfited. We should be offended, but we're also called to act. And so often What I encounter are people who kind of cross their arms and say, this is why I don't like the Bible. And I'm like, okay, fair enough, but are you doing anything about these situations? We can't go back here, 
but we can do something about these things that happen in the world today. And I think in a way what you're, you're absolutely drawing us back to is what we've been talking about throughout this whole conversation is that it's how we read the Bible. Yeah. And our big mistake is, you know, I, I distinctly remember once being asked to read Judges 19 in the context of worship. Um, oh. And then in the Church of England, you finish um, your reading with this is the word, the of, word the of the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of wanted to go, right, let's talk about this. Yeah. Um, it's one of those kind of really difficult things, isn't it? But if, yes. if in fact, um, sometimes I, I hear people say, rather than this is the word of the Lord, but hear the word yes. of the Lord. Or hear and the reading. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is, is probably the easier thing to say. But I think um, what, what you're saying in your interpretation of Judges 19 is actually if we hear the word of the Lord, then actually what that does is it impels us out of our seat to go out there and say things about the violence, about violence against women. Yeah, yeah. And you alluded a little bit in your answer, and I just want to pick it up because it's really important, I think, to um, the historical critical reading of scripture and recognizing that the books are being written to tell people things and they're telling them things that are more than just the stories. And we often miss that, I think. Yeah. And I wondered if you just wanted to talk about that a little yeah. bit more. Yeah. So um, so the historical critical method that we were exposed to in our training, um, those two words are very telling. Um, critical. This is a movement that is saying we need to read the Bible in ways other than um, for devotion. Um, we want to be um, critical of this text. We want to not just read it, but look through it, look behind it, analyze it. And we want to do it in a way that fits into some kind of historical rubric, whether that be the history of the development of religion or the history of the development of the text or archaeology. And all of this is shaped by the Enlightenment, this sense that this study of the text, this endeavor is a legitimate and a scientific thing. The historical critical method matters because it is important to see the historical context, the archaeological context, the literary development, um, the, all of those things matter. But it is not a perfect science um, because as we said before, the Bible is squirrely, the Bible is messy, and so it works sometimes and sometimes it doesn't. But I do recommend that we think of every method as a tool. And we use tools when they work and when they don't, we try another one. That, that methodology, that set of methodologies, I believe um, holds us to, um, to a practice that we can hold in tension and or in dialogue with our own context. What I mean by that is that as, as an African-American woman, my ear is very much attuned to the literary and storytelling components in scripture um, that I want to uphold and celebrate those aspects of the text. But I don't want to forget that this story happens in a particular time and context. And that time and context shapes how far I am able to stretch the interpretation. 
So when you were asking earlier, how far can you go? I think some of these methods help provide some parameters for how far we can go with interpreting a text. We talk about the story of the Levite's concubine happening in a particular kind of society where there were certain rules around women and their relationship to their fathers or their husbands or their sons. So one of the things that um, analyzing that story from a historical critical method affords us is the opportunity to ask the question, how different are things in our society today? Um, and how might that have an impact on how we understand what's happening then and what's happening in our world now? I hope I answered that question. <laughs> and it kind of leads to another one, which is the other one that I often get asked, which is, why can't you just let me read the Bible without putting all of this scholarship on top of it? Um, doesn't it just put you off? Um, I obviously have many answers, but yeah, I'd like yeah, to hear yeah. what you say. Yeah. I was like, yeah, you can do that, but you're going to end up in a crazy place. I guarantee it. Um, because there's so much going on. And the thing that's interesting about that for me is people wouldn't ask that of Shakespeare. People anticipate if I'm going to read Shakespeare, Shakespeare's this great writer. They, we know when he was born. We know where he came from. We know about, you know, the, the Globe Theater. We do all of this work so that we can um, engage this text with some level of integrity. Why would we not want to do this with this text that we believe is inspired? Absolutely. I, I, but I think then the next question is, you and I utterly love it. Um, and I happily spend hours and hours reading commentaries and being inspired by them. Um, but um, probably, well, I, speaking for myself, not speaking on behalf of you, um, I love reading a commentary because I've got enough of a framework and I can hang things on it and it causes me great joy because they're <laughs> answering the questions I'm asking. But for a non-specialist, it's almost like giving them um, an, a, a massive encyclopedia and saying, yeah. get on with this. Um, if people are interested, but just not able to read the really technical um, material, what do they do in that context? Yeah, I tell folks really, um, get it first, get a good study Bible. A good study Bible will give you a nice introduction to the book, give you an outline, tell you when it was written. Um, if we have any idea of who might have contributed to that text, we put that in there. If authorship, as we understand it today, is disputed, they'll tell you about that. And then it may give you some themes. And I find that is often really helpful for people to get. Um, it's, a, it's an on-ramp, if you will, onto the text. Um, some study Bibles will have notes throughout, but it needs to be a study Bible um, I would recommend that's done by academics that is accessible. So you kind of like a student um, study Bible, um, something that someone in seminary might use as an introduction. I think those are really helpful texts. And what do you think about reading um, the Old and the New Testament? Um, so one of the things I do as a New Testament scholar, what I do is I suggest people will get a cross-reference study Bible yes. and then read their Gospels, but follow up all the yes. Old Testament references. Yes. Um, what do you think about doing that? Oh, I think this is essential. Um, so as you know, I'm an Old Testament scholar. And whenever I read the New Testament, the thing that I'm always struck with is, you know, these, these guys are Jewish. Um, you know, Paul, um, so many of the gospel writers, uh, you know, so many of the, so many of the, the, the main characters 
are infused with this understanding of God, um, the God of the Exodus, the God who spoke through the prophets, that their understanding of the Messiah is shaped by their story that we read in the Old Testament. And so for, it helps us to see um, how, where the lines of continuity are. And by continuity, I don't mean sameness. I mean interpretation and reinterpretation and reinterpretation of similar themes. And this, when Jesus um, says things like you have heard it said, but I say unto you, um, I, I want us to understand when we see that in the New Testament, that is a part of an interpretive tradition that exists within Judaism. Um, that this is the way you engage this text. And if we get that, then it, it leaves open the possibility that when we look at black words on a white page, that we are part of an interpretive tradition that holds that, but is also looking through it and looking forward. There's still more meaning to be, to be mined from those words. Absolutely. Um, we've talked um, over a whole range of different things and I, I tempted you to tell me what your favourite um, <laughs> passage, well, today, what your favourite book is, which one we've talked about Song of Songs. Um, I'd like to end by asking you, have you got a favourite character from the Bible? And yeah. if you do, why, is it, why are they your favourite? Yeah. So I like lots of folks. Um, um, I wrote a commentary on Ruth. Um, I think one character that I identify with quite a bit would be Hagar. Um, Hagar um, comes into the household of Abraham and Sarah, and we get to see another level here because you have Abraham who's the head of the household, and then you have the beautiful Sarah who um, is the wife and is infertile in a society where um, one's value is connected to the ability to produce male children. Um, and so Sarah's struggle with infertility is a big part of the narrative over and against God's promise. And then Hagar comes into the mix, um, Egyptian. And so we, we, we already have little sirens going off in our head because we know um, that we're not supposed to like the Egyptians because the Egyptians will enslave the Israelites. And so there's this, this kind of subtext there. Um, and what is interesting to me in the story is how Abraham and Sarah's behavior towards Hagar is a reflection of the extent to which they have been shaped by the institution they live in. Um, I don't know what they were thinking personally. Um, I don't know what those relationships were like, but when we look at the system, um, we can make the case that um, they had a right to take Hagar and use her to produce a child. Um, and it goes so badly in so many ways. Um, Hagar um, gets pushed out. And what I love is that she encounters God in the wilderness. So we know the wilderness is the place where people encounter God. This is a great um, motif in the Bible, and it works so well in our lives, right? When you're in the wilderness, you know, hold on, you might just meet God. That That's great. That'll make a great sermon. Um, but when Hagar meets God, God asks her that question, Hagar, 
um, handmaid of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? And I love the fact that God asks these questions when the fact that God's there meeting her means that God knows where she's coming from. Um, and But God is inviting her to reflect on her situation. Um, God blesses her in this unthinkable way, makes a promise to her directly about her descendants, then does this really crazy thing tells her to go back and gives her a promise about her son that's kind of, what does that mean? He'll be a wild ass of a man with his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. Is that a good thing? Um, and then after all of that, she names God and the name she gives to God is El Roy, the God who sees. So what I love about this character is that although she may feel marginalized, put out, um, in so many ways, disregarded or discounted, God sees her and she names God. So Hagar reminds us of a God who sees the people that no one else sees. Um, and so I love the idea that, that our context gives us um, an opportunity to see God in a unique way. Yeah. Yeah. And then even in the worst of times, mm. we can still. And I love that kind of slight play on words in the Elroy because yeah. it's kind of the God who sees, but also I've seen the God who yes. sees. And, you know, yes. you kind of, you get kind of, and that's yeah. really kind of lovely that, you know, yes. Hagar in the midst of that absolutely awful situation yes. and the misery and the having to go back yes. says, actually, I am seen. And yeah. now I've seen the one who sees me. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, it's not like a fairy tale ending, right? Yes. It, but mm -hmm. but it, it is survival. Yeah. Yeah. Judy, it's been so fun chatting <laughs> with you. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Thank you.